Hey there, welcome to the IFM podcast. Welcome to episode number 22. In this episode, I will talk about your ticket submission both in week 8 and in week 9. In these two weeks, we discussed the capital budgeting and then we extended to take into account the international context of MNC's operation. So this episode will have three segments as usual. The first segment will talk about capital budgeting and its extension in terms of the international aspects of MNC's operation. The second segment will talk about direct foreign investment along with country risk. And lastly, the last segment will talk about the current issues pertaining to direct foreign investment. So let's start with the first segment. Um, so the couple of questions that some of you actually ask in terms of capital budgeting are as follows. The first one, whether it is necessary to do capital budgeting analysis. So as I mentioned in my tutorials as well as in the pre-class videos, uh, this direct foreign investment or investment project uh, that company has would involve a big amount of money and it is actually the sound thing to do to do planning and, and to determine whether the project is worthwhile doing so it is necessary to do so I mean most likely if you are the director of the company you need to do that otherwise your job will be in the line so you just need to show to your shareholders that the projects that you're doing enhances their wealth all right. So the second questions that I keep reading in the ticket submission is uh, regarding the different NPV figures. Uh, we all know that we need to do projects that will have positive NPV um, because the positive NPV will add into shareholders' wealth. Then how about negative NPV projects? So negative NPV projects will reduce shareholders' wealth because essentially uh, that what's this N negative NPV. Uh, because it doesn't satisfy the required rate of return coming from the investors of the company. Um, the case of zero NPV is not that straightforward because you need to take into account whether uh, there are alternatives projects available for the company. If there aren't any projects available and the only project that is available is having zero NPV, um, then perhaps it's better for the company to do something rather, not, rather than not doing anything. All right, so zero NPV is not that straightforward. But overall, uh, please keep in mind um, that managers, when they run companies, they need to do so uh, while satisfying uh, the need from the shareholders, whereby they need to enhance the shareholders' wealth. All right, so a couple of questions in terms of pros and cons of NPVs. Um, so NPVs is the most robust uh, method uh, to do capital budgeting, but the results are not that um, you know, it's not that familiar for business people uh, because business people would actually prefer to have percentage to represent returns rather than a dollar or ringgit figure. All right. So this is one of the reasons why it's not easy to, uh, you know, to, to publish or to, to uh, disclose the results of NPV analysis. Um, the IRR is more appealing in terms of presentation purposes, uh, but then IRR is actually, it is expressed in return uh, or percentage, so that's good. But IRR is actually a, it is not a real rate of return because this is the rate of return that will create NPV equals zero. So this is something that is calculated coming from that cash flows estimate uh, that the company input into the model. 
So to some extent, this actually uh, may deviate from reality. And there are some technical issues about IRR. I mean, the fact that the IRR can be wacky if you have non-conventional cash flow um, uh, changes uh, in terms of sign. Um, so NPV is to be more robust to, some, to, to that extent, uh, but the presentation creates an issue. And, and there also exists some other methods like payback period or discounted payback uh, period, um, and that you may also use that as well. Um, so the takeaway from this is basically, uh, if you are doing capital budgeting analysis, then you will need to do more than one method. I'll keep things simple in this unit, but I'm just letting you know if you have the need to do this capital budgeting analysis, then you need to do more than one technique. Uh, usually you will have to do NPV, IRR, and payback period, because these three methods will be, uh, they, they will, they will complement each other so that the decision makers can make better decisions. All right, so let's move on to the international extension of capital budgeting. Uh, so the international extension will take into account extra risks uh, that arise from the international operation that would involve exchange rate movements, inflation, different financing arrangements, uh, the probability of having blocked funds, uncertain salvage values, and the uh, possibility that the new subsidiaries will, will, will compromise the existing income coming from the different subsidiaries that, that, that have been existing before. Uh, so the first question is, um, why do we use parents' perspectives? Well, the parent is making the investment, so we just have to make sure that the parents will receive the positive NPV. There are different cases where the cash flow received by the subsidiary would be different than the cash flow received by the parents. And this would arise because of the international operation. So what are the factors that we need to consider uh, whereby these factors will create the different cash flows received by the subsidiary and by the parent? Um, so if you read your textbook, the first would be the tax differentials. The home country and host country would have different tax. Um, so whatever it is received by the, by the subsidiary, that may not be the same uh, what is received by the parents, taking into account the different tax uh, rate. Uh, the second thing is about the possibility of having restriction from the host country on remitted earnings. I'll talk more about this, but there's possibility that the cash flow received by the subsidiary cannot be received by the parents. And lastly, it's because of the uh, forex risk. So as you can see, the different cash flow received by the parents and the subsidiary, uh, that would actually create issues uh, when evaluating projects. Um, and this is why we need to uh, take into account the parents' perspective. So all the cash flows received by the parents needs to be included in the international capital budgeting analysis. Okay, so now that we discussed that, a uh, couple of questions in terms of what ifs, right? So what happens if some of the figures change? Uh, what happens if investors um, actually uh, revise its risk evaluation? What happens if the country uh, where the uh, subsidiary resides becoming more risky? Well, one thing you need to remember that this international capital budgeting is not, uh, you know, you do it once and you just put the numbers or you, you put the uh, spreadsheet into the bookshelf. No, uh, it is meant to be seen as a dynamic process. So you need to go back and check your capital budgeting analysis and compare with the current situation. Um, are there changes in the cash flows? Um, are you actually misestimating cash flows? The nearer you get to the second or third year, then you know that you may need some refinement to do uh, with your uh, capital budgeting. And once you enter the new values, what will happen to your NPV figures? So really, this has to be seen as a dynamic process where you get to update your estimates as you go. Uh, in terms of changes in the required rate of return, 
the country may be more risky, then you need to recalculate the NPV figures. Um, so the thing here, changes can happen because in, in, within the cash flows or changes can happen in the required rental return. So you should update your model regularly. Uh, again, the closer you get to the future, the more uh, precise your forecast would be. Um, and really, uh, the purpose of that exercise is to identify or if you have a big gap in your cash flows, then what are the actions that you need to rectify? Uh, or if the required return changes, uh, so how how should you know how should I go about it? Uh, should I actually make changes in the operation and so on and so forth? So the dynamic process would lead into uh, the identification of quick fixes, and hopefully, when we started with positive NPV, that would remain the same until the conclusion of the project. So a couple of questions in terms of remittance, and I can understand this because remittance will actually make up what the important input in terms of the cash flow calculation. So what determines the magnitude of the remittance? Um, so yeah, remittance depends on the parent's decision. Um, so the parents would have to take into account the um, exchange rate stability, host government attitude, economic condition of the host country, etc. So if the you know if the host country is more risky than perhaps um, it is more of the reason to rely on the local financing and therefore that will impact the remittance uh, from the subsidiary to the parent um, so on and so forth so this may, may be on the in the strategic decision uh, and that will have repercussions on the project themselves all right so the next question is why host government impose restriction on remitted earnings well there are so not all direct foreign investments actually done on good faith. Uh, so there are a couple of um, you know foreign investment that actually uh, try to take away uh, the profit um, from the host government. So they don't reinvest, but then they just take away the profit to the home country and not to reinvest and not to um, basically enhance the wealth of the local community. So this, I think, this is some uh, protection mechanisms done by the um, by the host country just to make sure that the you know the foreign investment will will stay longer, uh, so that the impact on the society wealth or the society well being can be experienced in a longer time. Um, but then again, it, it can be uh, you know it can be counterproductive as well for the for the host countries because if they're being too restrictive uh, with these remitted earnings, then they may compromise their uh, competitiveness among, uh, you know compared to the other country. So I think that's one of the reasons the the host why host governments impose restriction on remitted earnings. Right. So the second segment of this episode uh, talk about the DFI and country risk. So couple of issues that you ask in your ticket submission in terms of access to DFI. Uh, what are the factors to allow or ban foreign investment? I mean, a couple of things that come into mind in terms of protection of the local economy. If the host country want to, wants to protect a certain sectors, so they will ban foreign investment in that industry. And vice versa, a foreign investment is seen to be a catalyst uh, for a certain industry sector, then government will invite companies operating in that industry or it can also be uh, some political motives if the local politicians have business in that industry they want to protect that and a certain ban would probably be imposed uh, so this actually vary countries to countries but access to dfi is something strategic that every country would have to consider I have a, an interesting question in terms of Malaysia. Why would Malaysian government allow direct foreign investment to come, uh, where that you know we also have SMEs that can generate to the economy? 
Well, that is true. SMEs actually can reduce unemployment. But if you think about it, the scale at which MNCs can reduce unemployment is actually much larger. Um, and this is one of the reasons why uh, Malaysian government, along with the other governments around the world, they want to attract direct foreign investment because of the scale of these business activities um, and how that can contribute to the local economies and that would reduce uh, unemployment. So overall, this direct foreign investment would actually enhance the well-being of the surrounding society and also to contribute positively to the host country economy. And that, that's probably one, one of several reasons of, of, of this relying on direct foreign investment rather than SMEs. I'm not saying that that's the correct thing to do, but I'm just giving you the reasons why. All right. So in terms of the country risk assessment, uh, this actually, uh, you know, is quite deceptive in the way that it's actually dealing with numbers. But as you can see, it is actually very, very, very subjective. Um, so I'm not going to claim that that is the best method of doing that. Uh, but it is also prone to subjectivity. Um, so in terms of to enhance accuracy, as what your textbook suggests, um, the company may be prone to this subjectivity bias because they really want to invest in that particular country. But what they can do to enhance the accuracy of the system is they may want to hire third-party uh, consultant uh, to give a, an objective um, risk assessment. Um, so, you know, the... MNCs could also outsource the whole process entirely to the, uh, you know, to the consultant for them to actually help. Uh, but then again, there is no one way um, to measure this country risk. Uh, we're talking about something in the future, so there should be give and take in terms of your ability um, to to see what the futures look like. Okay, so the last aspect from the country risk is the host government takeover. Um, and I probably will talk about this in the uh, test feedback as well. Um, so this is basically the mechanisms um, that companies can do to prevent host government takeover. And to be honest, the host government takeover could be one of the worst nightmare that for, uh, foreign investment can experience. So basically to avoid this from happening, um, then the subsidiary uh, can either one, uh, try to make the business uh, not so appealing to be taken over. Right? And this is the reason why um, the company can operate in the short-run uh, perspective. So no replacement, uh, just operate with the old machine. So that will actually make the business to be less uh, appealing to be taken over. So that's the first way to do that. The second way is to, to, to actually to get support from the local businesses. Uh, you, get, you get support from the local labor union. You get support from the local creditors or you get support from the local supply chain. Uh, so if the government wants to do something negative uh, to your business and these local partners will stand with you and hopefully that will deter um, the, uh, the government intention to take over that investment. All right. So um, again, you make your business less appealing to be taken over and to get some backup from the local business. Okay, so a couple of interesting current issues that you ask in your ticket submission in terms of investing in Afghanistan, uh, given the recent change in political situations, I always see that the regime change will actually present opportunities and threat. So if you think that your company can gain uh, some opportunities by investing in Afghanistan, then why not? Um, so surely the, um, the economy is quite new um, and unique, uh, to say the least. Um, so that needs to be taken um, into consideration. But overall, um, you know, a country that is opening, um, I'm not sure to what extent Afghanistan is open to foreign investment. But, you know, 
some some opportunities may may arise there. But if it is too risky, then again, this is a matter of preference. If it is too risky, it doesn't matter how much return that you get. If you think the project is too risky and you're not taking it, then that's fine. That's a matter of preference, and there's no right or wrong answers about that. Okay, um, diversification during the COVID-19 era. So I think in principle, diversification would still work. Again, remember in diversification, you can only, uh, you know, you can only minimize the country-specific risk. Uh, but then again, you can't get away from the systematic risk. And the systematic thing that happens uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic is the slowing down of the economy because businesses uh, do not operate in the full capacity. Um, so there's nothing much you can do about it. If it is systematic risk, then you will get exposed. Uh, but in principle, diversification would still work. Okay, so lastly is in terms of the 30 global risk factors. Um, so which factors will be more important uh, in the next few years? I don't know. Um, so when I first actually, uh, when I first included these 30 global risk factors into my, into my, um, into my slides, uh, so I think that was the uh, economic cooperation or cybersecurity was the thing that was actually very important. Uh, I, we we actually couldn't foresee that you know pandemic would be one of the important factors. We actually uh, don't think pandemic would happen, and and as you can see, I mean this is only the beginning. Uh, we may actually have other pandemic, uh, but I think we should be at a better place to manage it if something else were to happen. All right, so I think this is way um, longer, but then I'm combining two episodes into one. Uh, so I hope that this is useful. Again, please try to read the textbook. Try to get the whole story. I think some of the questions can be addressed by reading the full story in the textbook. All right, so enjoy your break. I hope that you can get back to the semester with a much fresher way of looking things. All right, take care. I'll see you around. Bye-bye.